one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Easter, celebrated next week, is one of the most important Christian festivals of the year, although for many Europeans it has today lost some of its religious significance. During the Middle Ages, the calendar was full of various saints' days. Christianity was such a dominating influence that it is near impossible to imagine medieval Europe without it. A hugely important factor in the initial rise of the religion was its promotion by the Roman Emperor Constantine the Great in the early 4th century. But for this to happen, Constantine had first to defeat his main rival for power in Western Europe. Welcome to A History of Europe, Key Battles, the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, the decisive battle in the Roman Civil War between two rivals for power, Constantine and Maxentius. Historians mark the adoption of Christianity by the Roman Empire in the early 4th century as the beginning of the end of the ancient world. The next couple of centuries are termed Late Antiquity, a period of transition into the medieval ages, during which time European society underwent great changes, including the rise of Christianity. One of the men most responsible for the changes was Constantine the Great, Roman Emperor from the years 306 to 337. In the years between the reigns of Constantine and the first Roman Emperor, Augustus, the empire had remained the dominant power of the Mediterranean world. Despite a serious setback against the Germans in the Battle of the Teutoburg Forest, by the first century AD the Romans stretched from Britain and Morocco in the west as far as Syria and Egypt in the east. They reached a level of prosperity and level of military power not equalled for many centuries until after their eventual fall. Imperial control was based on a so-called principate system, in which the emperor held the title Princeps Senatus, or first among equals of the Senate. It was first devised by Augustus as an alternative to titles such as king or dictator, which would have created resentment by reminding the people of earlier days when Rome was ruled by tyrannical kings. But in reality, Augustus enjoyed sole power over his empire's military and administration. And thanks to successful rule and longevity, by the time he died, a heredity system was firmly in place. The system had a weakness in being, to a large extent, dependent on the character of the man at the top, yet it was strong enough to survive reigns of bad emperors such as Caligula and Nero. Then, during the 2nd century AD, the empire was lucky to be led by some highly capable men such as Trajan and Hadrian. However, in the mid-300s, the empire came near to collapse. It suffered devastating external attacks, especially from the Persians in the east, but also from Germanic tribes in the north. 
to compound matters, rival generals frequently fought each other in a series of civil wars for the title of emperor, and none were able to survive long enough in power to re-establish stability and good order. In the old days of the Roman Republic, and early days of the Empire, the chief military officers came from the ruling aristocracy. Leading an army had been a traditional stepping stone in the career path of the upper class to the highest offices in the land, based in the city of Rome. Over time, though, army officers were more likely to be selected from the rank and file, from whoever showed the greatest bravery and leadership. The old aristocracy, meanwhile, increasingly stayed home to run their estates rather than risk their lives in battle. In her book on Constantine, Elizabeth James describes how, as its recruitment base changed, the Roman legions became the new focus of loyalty, where once it had been for the glory and honour of Rome and the Emperor. Also, since the Empire had become so large, its soldiers had often never set foot in Rome or even Italy, and felt more affinity with their personal commander than unknown men in a distant city. A series of ambitious generals stationed around the Empire, with their armies standing loyally with them, over the decades made bids to become emperor. Rome still had an effective war machine, but too often it was being directed against itself rather than for the good of the empire as a whole. Whole legions were busy fighting and killing each other instead of defending the borders. Despite these problems, the empire managed to recover in the late 3rd century thanks to the military skills of capable soldier emperors such as Aurelian and Diocletian, and it was Diocletian, who ruled from 284 to 305, who finally succeeded in bringing stability back to the empire. He abandoned the facade of republican rule by consensus for the firm hand of control, replacing Augustus's principal style of leadership with what we now call the dominate. He styled himself an autocrat, elevating himself above the empire's masses by introducing elaborate court rituals, often adopted from Asia. For example, he wore sumptuous robes of silk and gold and gemmed shoes, and restricted access to himself to all but a close, privileged circle. Diocletian also introduced both military, economic and administrative reforms, which on the whole were successful, and many of which survived him. Together they helped improve the structure of Roman imperial government, enabling the empire to stay strong and survive for another century and a half. However, not all of Diocletian's policies were successful, most notably a campaign of persecution against Christians, which failed to stem the growing popularity of their religion. His most radical innovation was a new system of joint rule by four monarchs known as the Tetrarchy. Realising the empire had become too large to be administered by one person, power was now to be shared between the two co-emperors, called Augusti, and two respectively subordinate junior emperors, called Caesars. Each emperor would then rule over a quarter division of the empire. In the initial Tetrarchy of AD 293, the more prosperous eastern half of the empire was governed by Diocletian himself and a Thracian general called Galerius, who became his subordinate Caesar. For the western half of the empire, Diocletian chose a fellow Illyrian, Maximian, who he had fought with in previous campaigns. The final member of the quartet, Constantius Chlorus, another army officer originating from the Danube region, 
and the father of Constantine the Great, was appointed Caesar of the West. Diocletian envisaged the Tetrarchy as a permanent institution in which, at approximately twenty-year intervals, the two Augusti were to abdicate in favour of the two Caesars, who would then become Augusti in their turn and appoint two new Caesars, and so on until perpetuity. However, according to Michael Grant's book, Constantine the Great, it was a vain and hopeless dream, since the Tetrarchy had only been held together because of Diocletian's predominance. In practice, the nature of Roman politics required a single strongman. In 305, Diocletian and Maximian abdicated, the latter reluctantly, and in their place were promoted Constantius and Galerius, of whom the latter was by far the most important of the two. As for who would be the two new Caesars, both Constantius and Maximian were expecting, or at least hoping, their sons to be promoted the two men who would years later fight on the Milvern Bridge, Constantine and Maxentius. Instead, Galerius, opposed to the ideas of hereditary succession, perhaps because he had no children, was in a position to appoint his own nominees, Severus and Maximinus Dyer, as the two new Caesars. So on May the 1st, Maximian, before the assembled armies at Milan, removed his purple cloak and proclaimed Constantius as Augustus and Severus is the new Caesar. In the east, the same scene played out at Nicomedia, under the authority of Diocletian. The first change of guard had gone smoothly. Constantius's first campaign as Augustus was in Britain, where he was joined by Constantine. After a successful military campaign in Scotland, they retired to York for the winter. Constantius had planned to continued the campaign, but died of an illness in July 306. Constantine wanted to ensure he was not passed over this time, and so popular among his legions allowed them to proclaim him emperor. However, Galerius had no intention of appointing Constantine, instead promoting Severus to the position of Augustus, leaving a snubbed Constantine to consider his next options. Neither side was immediately able to resolve matters either way. In fact, the situation got more complex the year after, when Maxentius also made a bid for power. The Praetorian Guard, based in Rome, who since the time of Augustus had been the bodyguard unit for the Emperor, and therefore a powerful group, led a rebellion. They were angry at orders that their unit was to be dissolved, and helped stoke the flames of a riot by citizens, angry at new taxes. The Praetorians acclaimed Maxentius as emperor, who was happy to accept, hoping for official recognition from the two Augusti. However, as with the case of Constantine, Galerius refused to accept his claim. Apart from a personal dislike of Maxentius, Galerius surely wanted to deter others from following the examples of Constantine and Maxentius, and declare themselves emperor. Maxentius, as opposed to Constantine, had few troops at his command, so the two Augusti, Galerius and Severus, probably believed that it would be not too difficult to remove the usurper. So in early 307, Severus marched on Rome with a large army, an army which had previously been commanded by Maxentius's father, Maximian. Fearing the arrival of Severus, Maxentius offered his father co-rule of the empire. Maximian accepted, and when Severus arrived under the walls of Rome and besieged it, his men deserted to their old commander. Severus fled to Ravenna, 
and Maxentius offered to spare his life and treat him humanely if he surrendered peaceably. However, as soon as Severus gave himself up, Maxentius went back on his word and imprisoned and later killed his unfortunate rival. Galerius was not willing to accept this, so in the summer of the same year he personally led an even larger army into Italy, again to try and depose Maxentius. However, Maxentius also managed to bribe this new army to defect. Galerius was forced to withdraw in order to avoid sharing the same fate as Severus. With so many competing emperors now in existence, in 308 Galerius, together with Maximian, and retired Emperor Diocletian called an imperial conference to rectify the situation and bring some order back to the imperial government. Here it was agreed that Galerius's long-time friend and military companion, Licinius, would become Augustus in the west, with Constantine as his Caesar. In the east, Galerius remained Augustus, and Maximius Dyer kept his position of Caesar. Maxentius was declared an usurper. In the year 310, however, the ex-Augustus Maximian decided to make a bid to regain power. He organised a rebellion against Constantine, who was at the time campaigning against the Franks. As soon as he heard of it, Constantine marched his army up the Rhine to put down the rebellion. Maximian was quickly abandoned by his troops and captured. Under considerable pressure, he committed suicide in July 310. Galerius's death the next year, in April 311, of illness triggered an outbreak of hostilities again between the different factions. Without a single strong leader, there was nothing standing in the way of each rival commander staking their claim for supreme power. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The problem with the contemporary sources is that they are almost all heavily biased in Constantine's favour. Our principal sources are the Christian authors Eusebius and Lactantius, who depict the emperor as if with almost superhuman qualities, and are scathing of Maxentius and Diocletian in particular. To contrast these accounts, we have the works of the anti-Constantine pagan historian Zosimus. Together with other secondary sources, historians have been able to put together a story of events with reasonable certainty. Constantine decided to make his move by leading his army from Gaul to attack Maxentius, still based in Rome. 
The sources sympathetic to Constantine differ as to his justification. One version claimed that Maxentius started the war on the ground that he needed to avenge the murder of his father, Maximian, by Constantine. The other depicts Constantine himself as virtuously initiating the war himself in order to liberate Rome from what was described as Maxentius's tyranny. As for Maxentius's account of events, no records survive. Either way, it's clear both men were highly ambitious leaders, unwilling to share power with a rival, and a showdown was inevitable. Both were nervous of the possibility that Licinius, who had taken over from Galerius in the east, might intervene to help the other. But Constantine got the upper hand by forging an alliance with him, and offering to him his sister in marriage. And so, in 312, Constantine crossed the Alps into Italy, heading for Rome. Maxentius failed to occupy the Alpine passes, and so block his rival's advance. Instead, he sent his Praetorian prefect, Pompeianus, to confront Constantine in the north of the peninsula. Pompeianus fortified the north Italian cities, his troops reinforced by transfers from North Africa, a province loyal to Maxentius. The two sides clashed, first at Susa, in northern Italy, where Pompeianus had installed a military garrison. Constantine ordered his troops to set its gates on fire and scale its walls, and he managed to take the town quickly. Constantine forbade the plunder of the town, emphasising his claim to be fighting a war of liberation, not conquest. The next battle took place not far from Turin, where a substantial army, loyal to Maxentius, clashed in the open against Constantine. During the engagement, Constantine's centre gave way, forming an encirclement around the enemy, and this way won the battle. Maxentius's army fled to the town of Turin, but were refused entry at the city gates, and had no alternative but to surrender to Constantine. Other cities of the north Italian plain, recognising Constantine's quick and clement victories, sent him embassies of congratulation for his victory. He moved on to Milan, where he was met with more open gates. Next, he advanced on Verona, where Pompeianus was waiting for him, but again Constantine was victorious. Pompeianus was killed and the city was captured. The supporters of Maxentius, though steadily losing ground, still offered resistance, but they were forced to give up the towns of Aquileia and Modena after a short siege at each. By the middle of October, the road to Rome lay open. In Rome, it was expected that Maxentius would try the same strategy that had worked successfully against Severus and Galerius earlier, that is, try to buy off the enemy soldiers while remaining safe in the well-defended city of Rome. A siege would, after all, cost his enemy much more. Instead, however, he offered battle to Constantine near the Milvian Bridge, a little north of the city, on October 28th, 312. Ancient sources attribute Maxentius's decision to superstition. It was the anniversary of his acquisition of Rome, and they believed this would give him good fortune. With hindsight, it turned out to be a very rash decision, in fact highly foolish. Constantine did not possess good siege weapons, and would have found it very difficult to break into Rome by force. Perhaps Maxentius feared he would lose supporters to Constantine in a protracted siege, but this is conjecture. What we do know is that by the time of the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, Maxentius had lost the popularity that he used to enjoy in Rome. 
his pro-Roman attitude ought to have endeared himself to the Senate and the upper class of Rome. However, lavish spending on new construction programmes had emptied the city's coffers, and even required the unpopular raising of new taxes and seizing of some property. The night before the battle, Constantine claimed to have had a vision which instructed him to fight under protection of the Christian god with the words, In this sign you will conquer. The two sources telling this story, the writers Lactantius and Eusebius, somewhat contradict each other as to the details of the events. The popular notion, however, is that the symbol that Constantine saw was either a cross or the Cairo sign. The Cairo looks like the letters X and P superimposed and represent the first two letters of the Greek word for Christ. Either way, Constantine perceived the sign as a message from God and commanded his troops to write the Cairo on their shields. As Constantine neared Rome, Maxentius, advancing over the Milvian Bridge, ordered it destroyed so that it could not be used by the enemy. He then ordered a pontoon bridge constructed for his own army's use. Maxentius also constructed a series of trenches and small fortifications to help cover his retreat if required. Maxentius deployed his troops close to the Tiber and with their backs to it, in a traditional formation, three lines of infantry in the centre with cavalry on either wing. Constantine opened the encounter by launching his cavalry on both wings and drove back Maxentius's cavalry on both sides. He next ordered forward his infantry against Maxentius's centre at the same time as the cavalry wheeled round to attack the flanks of the infantry. The battle in the centre was the fiercest. The Praetorian Guard performed their duty of defending Maxentius as best they could, but ultimately this was to no avail. Morale on the whole was poor under Maxentius's troops. They did not seem to put up a great fight and were quickly driven back. But since they were so close to the river, there was little ground to give, and they tried to flee back across the river. But the pontoon bridge was a temporary structure. It broke apart under the weight of thousands of armed infantry running across in a panicked stampede and collapsed into the river. Those trapped on the north bank were either captured or slaughtered by Constantine's men. With Maxentius's army in disarray, the battle came to a close. Maxentius's body was found drowned in the river and the next day paraded through the city. Until the campaign against Constantine, Maxentius appeared to have been an effective and charismatic military leader. But in the Battle of the Moravian Bridge, he seemed to have made terrible decisions, especially leaving the safety of the city and then burning the original bridge, which only ended up trapping his own troops. Constantine was now undisputed leader of the western half of the empire. He was not remotely interested in being part of a tetrarchy or any other form of power-sharing, by necessity, he coexisted with Licinius for some years until he was able to defeat his final rival in AD 325 and so claim sole leadership of the empire. One great significance of Constantine winning the civil war was his later foundation of the city of Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul, which became by far the largest and richest city in Europe in the early Middle Ages. It will feature highly later in the History of Europe podcast series. Even more significant than this was the Emperor's promotion of the Christian faith, reinforced by his long reign and subsequent establishment of a new imperial dynasty. 
Although it is not fashionable among today's academic historians to attribute great changes to individuals or single events, but instead to social, geographic or economic factors, I believe the character of Constantine and the Battle of the Melvian Bridge did make a real difference. The main question here is whether it was inevitable that Christianity developed into the dominant religion of the Empire and subsequently Europe, or whether without Constantine's personal conversion and forceful promotion of Christianity, it might never have spread to the extent that it did. Christians had been persecuted at different times in Rome since at least AD 60. For most of the time, though, they were tolerated. As long as the empire was peaceful and prosperous, the refusal of the Christians to pay homage to the emperor and state gods was usually overlooked. However, when things started falling apart, as happened in the 3rd century, many Romans believed they were suffering the anger of their gods, who were collectively punishing them for the Christians' refusal to honour them. The late 3rd and early 4th centuries saw the most intense periods of persecutions, the worst coming under Diocletian and Galerius, most enthusiastically by the latter. But the persecutions did not succeed. Perhaps in some ways they had the opposite effect of providing the Christianity's publicity and public sympathy. Many Christians escaped actual punishment, and the sufferings of those who were martyred strengthened the resolve of their fellow Christians. We are told that Galerius, on his deathbed, regretted the persecutions. Believing that his illness had been inflicted upon him by the God of the Christians as divine retribution, his final act was to issue an edict of toleration of Christians. Unfortunately, it's impossible to know the true extent of the Christian faith at this time. According to the estimates of the historian Keith Hopkins, Christians may have accounted for approximately 10% of the Roman population by 300. But we really don't know, since the only voices that have come down to us are those of the upper elite, not the masses. There is also much debate as to when and how complete Constantine's personal conversion to the faith was. In his first years of rule, he acted slowly and cautiously in promoting Christianity. But there is little doubt that he did have a powerful sense of being divinely guided and of having a mission to restore both good government and true religion. The two, after all, went hand in hand. Authority was invested in him by virtue of the favour of the one true God. Constantine's attitude to paganism evolved over the duration of his reign. At first, he redirected massive public funds to the buildings of the new churches and left pagan temples alone. Then in the year 313, he issued the Edict of Milan, a document authorising religious toleration. But by the end of his reign, the emperor had turned overtly hostile to paganism and ordered a tearing down of temples. Over the next two generations, after the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, Christianity went from the persecuted faith of a minority to the official state religion, thanks to continued support from the Constantine's successors. With one exception, all future emperors were Christians, who actively promoted their faith. The most important was the Emperor Theodosius, who ran a vigorous campaign to stamp out all non-Christian religions in the late 4th century. After that, there was no turning back, Christianity had become an intrinsic part of the identity of the Roman Empire and in turn of the whole of Europe. Early Christianity, in turn, was greatly shaped by the fact that it grew up in the Roman Empire.
It started as a branch of the Jewish faith, but ended up Romanized. Also because it was adopted by the imperial leadership, its own organization became more hierarchical in nature. The emperors and then kings of Europe who followed were able to use religion to justify the social hierarchy with themselves at the top as something preordained by God. In my next podcast, I will tell the story of the fall of the Western Roman Empire, which in its dying years fought one last great battle against Attila and his army of Huns. With the demands of a full-time job and a seventh-month-old son, realistically it will be another three weeks. Please join me then for the Battle of the Catalonian Fields. Thank you for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.